I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. Now, negotiation is a part of life. So, for example, if you're willing to, unwilling to negotiate with your spouse, chances are that you're going to have a chaotic marriage. If you're unwilling to negotiate with your kids, chances are that you'll probably have strained relationships. And if you don't know how to negotiate when you're looking to buy a house or buy a car, you may end up losing out on money that you could have saved. And if you're not willing to negotiate, then someone else may snatch that car or that house out from under you. We've heard presidents say before that we do not negotiate with terrorists. We have a current candidate for president who insists he can fix everything simply because he knows how to negotiate. It's going to be huge. Some negotiations are good. Some negotiations are bad. Sometimes negotiations should be attempted and sometimes they shouldn't be attempted. And when negotiations succeed, good things can happen. Relationships can be reconciled. Sales can be made that benefit both parties. In the case of military conflict, even lives can be spared. But when negotiations fail, when talks break down, the results can be even worse than if the negotiations had never even begun. Now, as we pick up today in Judges with the story of Jephthah, we're going to see five different conversations. And all five of these conversations involve negotiations of some type. And while those negotiations are a part of life that can lead to great good, you also can't separate negotiations from the sinful men who make them. And as we've already seen so far in Judges, sin has great power to taint and corrupt anyone and anything at any time. And in the case of Jephthah, that will lead to tragedy. So let's open up to Judges chapter 10, verse 6. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be found on page 144. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you when you leave today. But before we read, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for the privilege of opening your word. We thank you for the privilege of reading it. And we are so grateful that you actually want us to know who you are. Um, you aren't distant and removed and we don't have to make guesses about what your character is or what your desires are. You have told us those things in your word. And so, Father, I pray that uh, through the accountability that we can offer each other, through the guidance of your Holy Spirit, through the assistance of your word, that your character would become our character, that your desires would be our desires, that your priorities would be our priorities. And God, I pray that would infiltrate every area of life, um, our families, our jobs, our schools, our neighborhoods, uh, even how we vote. Uh, as we mentioned, voting is a great privilege. It's a great responsibility. But I pray that we would wield that privilege wisely, that we would do it with discernment, that we would do it with humility, that we would view voting as something that we can steward for your glory. God, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the stories of your word, even the stories that are dark and disturbing. I pray that they would make us think more deeply about who you are and what you want of us. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Starting in Judges chapter 10, verse 6. 
The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So we start where we always start in the book of Judges. That's the Israelites being brutally oppressed by the very people they abandoned God for. Now, this time around, the Ammonites are the prime villains. Israel is severely distressed because of them. And the oppression only looks to get worse as the Ammonites plan to go on the offensive. Now, why did this happen? Well, of course, it happened for the same reason that it always happens in the book of Judges. It happened because the Israelites abandoned God. And not only after all these stories have the Israelites not learned their lesson, they've gotten even worse. If you read those first few verses again, they're worshiping even more gods than they have earlier in the book. They're worshiping every god except for the one true god. But of course, like always, the Israelites cry out to that god, the real god, to save them. They kind of view him as their get-out-of-jail-free card, right? He's the one that you call when you need some help. He's the one that you call when you're in trouble. But the rest of the time, you just kind of sweep him off to the side. Well, as they cry out to God, we see the first of those five conversations in the story of Jephthah. The Israelites start this conversation with God, begging God to save them. And they seem to be repentant, right? I mean, they do admit their sin up front, but you have to ask if they're really repentant. I mean, we've seen this so many times in the book of Judges. So many times they repent only to return to their old ways. It's really hard to take their repentance seriously anymore, isn't it? Well, similar to last week, God doesn't seem to take their repentance as genuine and heartfelt. God rejects their repentance. God apparently knows that Israel is like that child who, if you let them off the hook over and over again, they'll never learn their lesson. If you keep bailing them out over and over again, you actually do them more harm than good 
in the long run. And here's the issue with the Israelites. Having read everything we've read so far, seeing the pattern that we've seen, something has become very clear, and it's not good. What's become clear is that the Israelites don't really want God. They don't really want God. The Israelites just want the relief that God can provide. Look again at their request in verse 15. It's almost like they're looking God in the eye and saying, Okay, God, you know what? You're right. We don't deserve deliverance. We don't expect you to deliver us. But you're still going to deliver us, right? I mean, you've always done that in the past. You're not going to stop now. That's the problem. The Israelites don't really want God. They just want the relief that he can provide. They just want to use him when they get in trouble. For the Israelites, God is just a means to an end. So they've asked God to deliver them. God has refused. What do you do now? Well, that's when they try to negotiate with him. You notice that only after God rejects their cries initially, only then do they actually put away their foreign gods. Only after God rejects their initial cries do they actually make concrete, practical repentance. It seems as though they're trying to coerce God. They're trying to convince him to deliver them. Maybe if we put away these foreign gods, maybe if we put our idols in the drawer for a little bit, maybe then he'll decide to deliver us. Maybe then he'll lighten up. Maybe he'll get over it. And if that's what it takes for him to get these Ammonites off our backs, then you know what? I guess that's what we can do for a time. Well, what's going to happen? Has God really, truly, finally, once and for all, abandoned them? Will he hear their cries? Will he deliver them? Yes, he will. But it's not because of anything they do. It's not even because of their repentance. It's not because they successfully negotiate. They successfully convince him. Verse 16 tells us that it is purely out of God's grace that he will act. He grows impatient with their misery. And the good news is that God is acting in just the nick of time. Because Gilead, one of the territories of Israel, is on the brink of destruction. And if Gilead falls, then the entire nation of God's people faces grave danger. Let's continue the story in chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So when we meet Jephthah... It's safe to say that he's pretty rough around the edges, right? Jephthah is an outcast in every sense of the word, an illegitimate child, so not even his family will embrace him. When he gets kicked out of his home, no one from the community seems to come to his defense. Jephthah heads out on his own to live as a bandit in the land of Tob. He's surrounded by a bunch of thugs, a bunch of worthless fellows. Now, if you're thinking to yourself... 
That's kind of a shady guy to turn the history, the future of Israel over to. That seems like kind of a shady judge, right? I mean, can you really trust a bandit like Jephthah, a total outcast? How desperate are you? Well, here's the thing about Jephthah. He's a mighty warrior. Sure, he's an outcast. Sure, he's rough around the edges. In the words of theologian Billy Joel, you may be right, he may be crazy, but he just may be the lunatic you're looking for in this situation. So the Gileadites turn to Jephthah, the mighty warrior. That's how desperate they are. Look at verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you were in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So the elders of Gilead, again, are desperate for anyone who can save them, which means they'll even turn to someone like Jephthah. If Gilead falls, the entire nation is in trouble. And so when they turn to Jephthah, we see the second conversation of our story between those elders and Jephthah. Now, at first, Jephthah rejects their plea. I mean, why would he help them? Way long ago, they rejected him. They cast him out. They wanted nothing to do with him. Kind of sounds like their relationship with God, doesn't it? They only turn to God when they're in trouble and they need help. In the same way, they only turn to Jephthah when they're in trouble, when they're desperate, when they need help. So as a result of Jephthah's rejection, they then try to do the same thing they did with God just a few verses earlier. They try to negotiate with him. Only this time, the negotiations actually work. Jephthah agrees to deliver Israel, especially when he hears that he won't just be a fighter, but that he will be head over all the Gileadites. Okay, that has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Some power, some respect, a chance to vindicate yourself after you'd been kicked out of your home earlier in life, maybe even a chance to get back at those brothers of yours. So Jephthah agrees to be their deliverer, and Israel has hope. Now, before we go any further, do you notice anything particularly strange about Jephthah's calling compared to other stories in the book of Judges? Jephthah's calling is unlike the previous callings in that God has been completely silent so far. He didn't call Jephthah the way he called Gideon with a divine messenger. He didn't speak to Jephthah through a prophet like he did in the story of Barak. So far, we have absolutely no endorsement of Jephthah from God. It almost seems as though this was the Israelites' plan B. 
They're saying to themselves, okay, if you won't appoint a judge to deliver us, God, fine. We'll do it ourselves. We'll find our own deliverer. But regardless of how he got there, Jephthah now has a task to accomplish. He's got a sizable enemy to defeat, and he must free Israel. Now, in verses 12 through 28, we see the third conversation of the story. This one between Jephthah and the king of the Ammonites, the enemy. Now, this time, Jephthah is the one who does the negotiating. It seems like he wants to avoid bloodshed. That's a pretty good trait of a leader, right? But if you read the conversation, it honestly doesn't seem like either party is all that interested in peace. Neither Jephthah nor the king of the Ammonites is willing to budge. And that's kind of important for negotiations to work, right? Both parties have to be willing to give a little. And in this conversation, neither party will give. So ultimately, talks break down. It becomes clear that peace is not a realistic option. And in Jephthah's one true shining moment of the story, look at what he says. Chapter 11, verse 27. Jephthah says, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Pretty bold claim. I mean, you read those words and you think, that's leadership. That's faith. That's the kind of confidence in God that men like Barak and men like Gideon lacked. Jephthah sounds pretty good so far. He sounds bold. He sounds courageous. He's a true 100% leader. Well, not so fast. There's more to learn about Jephthah, as we see in verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Hear that? God has endorsed him at this point to deliver Israel. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. And passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aroer to the neighborhood of Mineth, Twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So, in our fourth conversation, Jephthah talks with God for the very first time in the story. Jephthah's not just talking about God, he's not just invoking God's name to intimidate his enemies. Jephthah actually attempts a conversation with God. But here's the thing about this conversation, if you can even call it a conversation. It's very one-sided, isn't it? A conversation is two people talking. We don't see God talking with Jephthah. We just see Jephthah bossing God around. What we see Jephthah doing is offering God a reward. Hey, God, if you save us. I'll burn up whatever comes out of my house when I get home after the victory. I'll make a sacrifice, a burnt offering for your glory. And this one-sided conversation that Jephthah has, he attempts to negotiate with God. God, if you'll help me out with this battle, then I will worship you. 
That shows us a few things about Jephthah's character, doesn't it, that we haven't read about so far. It shows us that Jephthah's clearly not as confident in God as he sounded before. Remember verse 27? The Lord, the judge, let him decide between us. Jephthah's not really all that confident. If he really believed that God was on his side, if he really believed that God was powerful, then why would he need to convince God to help him out with an offering of worship? If he really believed that God was good and powerful and on his side, why the need for the negotiations? It's clear that Jephthah isn't as confident in God as he wanted to look. But then on top of that, we also learn that Jephthah is not confident in himself either. He knows that he can't defeat the Ammonites on his own. That's why he tries to convince God to help him out. And thirdly, we learn that Jephthah thinks God can be manipulated. He thinks God can be manipulated. If I just give God something, then he'll help me out, right? He treats God like a dog. If I just wave a treat in front of his nose, I can get him to do what I say. I can get him to sit or stand or beg or, in this case, deliver me from my enemies. What it comes down to is that Jephthah is no different than the sinful Israelites that he's trying to save. He views God in the same lackluster way that they do. God, if you deliver us, then we'll put away our idols. God, if you help us out, we'll make a burnt offering for your glory. God, if you scratch our back, we'll scratch your back. Not really the right way of viewing God, is it? Now, ultimately, the Ammonites are defeated. Israel is delivered. But it's not because of Jephthah's vow. God had already determined to act well before the elders of Gilead even contacted Jephthah. On top of that, God didn't need Jephthah's condescending reward to deliver Israel. God anointed him for this task before Jephthah ever even made the vow. The vow was unnecessary. The vow didn't need to happen. God was going to deliver his people anyway. But Jephthah returns home. He's a conquering hero. But what about that vow? You can't just forget about that. Look at verse 34. The vow becomes the focus of the story. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed. She and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. And it became a custom in Israel 
that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. It's really horrifying and tragic what happens in this story. What's sad about it is that Jephthah's story should have ended back at verse 33. The Israelites were delivered. We can now usher in our time of peace. But the story doesn't end there. Jephthah's story should have ended earlier in the same way that Gideon's story should have ended earlier from last week. Before Gideon felt the need to hunt down those two kings. The point is that both Jephthah and Gideon felt the need to unnecessarily take things into their own hands. Jephthah's daughter, of course, is the primary victim of his sin. She's presented as pure and innocent and submissive. None of those words would be used to describe Jephthah. The most heartbreaking negotiation of the entire story is in this fifth conversation, when Jephthah's daughter negotiates with her father for two months of mourning before he sacrifices her. Now, some have tried to soften the blow of the story by suggesting that Jephthah didn't actually vow to kill his daughter. Instead, he vowed to send her into a life of temple service. But if that were the case, just temple service, then the yearly mourning seems a little bit over the top. And not to mention, the stories of judges aren't meant to be cleansed or sanitized or maybe kind of weakened or watered down. In the book of Judges, we see the nitty, gritty, and ugly reality of sin up close and personal. And this story is a wonderful example of just how deadly sin really is. Now, of course, the question that is always asked and is rightly asked of the story is this. Should Jephthah have kept his vow? Should Jephthah have kept his word that he made to God? Should he have stuck with it? No, of course not. We read that God has no desire for rash vows. We know that God has no desire at all for child sacrifice. If Jephthah had known anything about the character of God, he would have known what God said in Leviticus chapter five, verses four through six. If you make a rash vow, one that you know you should not fulfill, repent of it. Offer an animal sacrifice, admit your sin, and throw yourself at God's mercy. Don't follow through with the vow. That's what somebody who knew God's character would have done. Someone who knew God's desires would have done. Somebody like that would have spared their daughter's life. But again, Jephthah doesn't appear to know who God really is. Jephthah appears to think that the good and righteous and holy and just God of Israel. He's just like the gods of the surrounding peoples, cruel, fickle, in need of human appeasement. With the story of Jephthah, the degenerative cycle of judges just keeps on going. Right when you think you've hit rock bottom in the story of Gideon, you hit rock bottom again in the story of Jephthah. When you think things can't get any worse. And ultimately, like Gideon and like his wicked son, Abimelech, Jephthah fuels a civil war amongst God's people. Forty two thousand Israelites will die at Jephthah's hand. And when Jephthah himself dies, there is no commendation. There's no honor. 
there are no years of peace like all the other judges. There's just death. Just darkness. Now, if you thought that taking some kind of practical lessons from the stories of Deborah and Barak and Gideon, if you thought that was hard, well, what in the world do you do with the story of Jephthah? What do you take from this story? Well, a few points to consider, one of them being one that we've talked about several times already in the book of Judges. The first point is that God is gracious. Like we've already talked about before, seeing the wickedness and seeing the sin of the Israelites and Jephthah, that serves to highlight just how utterly different God is from sinful humanity. I mean, God heard the Israelites' cries, even though they had absolutely nothing to offer him. They had nothing to bring to the table, no leverage, and none of us would have blamed God for simply remaining silent after their repeated, half-hearted repentance. And what's truly amazing is that even after a story like this, the story of Jephthah, even after this, God will still love his people. God will not abandon his people. God will not forget about his people, even after all this sin. If you don't believe that God is gracious in the Old Testament, turn to the book of Judges and read about the things that the Israelites were guilty of. And yet God delivered them anyway. Another point we learn from the story of Jephthah is that false knowledge of God leads to false worship of God. Understanding who God is is not just some matter of checking all the right theological boxes or intellectually holding all the right statements of faith. How we view God and what we believe about God will affect the way we view others. It will affect the way we view the world around us. It will affect the way we live and it will affect how we worship. And so if we believe in a God who is harsh and fickle and bloodthirsty and teeming with uncontrollable rage, then we will do great damage in our attempts to please him. We will do great harm in our attempts to worship him. And of course, the beauty of God's word is that we don't have to guess about what God's character is like. We don't have to guess about what he wants, what he desires. He has told us who he is. He has told us what kind of worship he seeks, and it's in his word for us to read. And a third point, maybe one that we think goes without saying, we do not negotiate with God. Now, again, you might think, well, of course not. We don't negotiate with God. Why would we try to negotiate with God? Well, do we sometimes live and think as though God can be bribed? Do we sometimes think to ourselves, you know, if I go to church enough, God will then keep my kids out of trouble. If I give enough money, God will be obligated to give me even more in return. If I pray enough, then God will be obligated to keep me physically healthy. Do we have a transactional relationship with God where we view him as nothing more than a bank, promising to make a worship deposit as long as he lets us make a blessing withdrawal? I pray that we would not view God in that way. I pray that we would not treat God the way the Israelites and Jephthah treated him. I pray that we wouldn't just view him as a means to an end, the person who can give us the things that we want if we worship him enough. The person that we can turn to when things get bad, but then all the other times of the year, 
or our lives. We can just kind of push them aside. I pray that our primary joy wouldn't come from having the things that we ask God to give us, but from simply having a relationship with him. The reward is not what God can give us. The reward is God himself. I pray that would be our number one priority and our number one desire. And ultimately, to think that we can negotiate with God, well, that implies that we have some kind of leverage, that we have something to offer, that we have something to bring to the table. But the truth is that we don't. You and I, today, 2016, we're subject to the same sin that Jephthah was subject to. Thus, we are completely and utterly need in God to act out of his own goodness and out of his own grace for our salvation, not because we have something to offer him. Jephthah apparently thought to himself, you know, I bet God will save me if I offer him a sacrifice. But we know that God saved us because he made a sacrifice. We know that God saved us because God offered his child. We don't offer ours. I pray that we would love and serve and worship God, not an expectation of all the things that he will then be obligated to give us. But we would worship God and praise God and honor God, even if we know that he would never give us the things that we want. I pray that the true joy of our lives would simply be the relationship with him, not the things that we hope he'll give us, not the relief that we want him to provide. But the number one source of joy and worship in our lives would simply be having a relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've told us who you are. You've told us what you want. And that because of that, you spare us from so much great sin. If it was up to us to guess what you're like and to guess what you want and to guess what your priorities are, then that would be a very warped picture of God. But thank you that you have spoken, that you have revealed yourself through your word, that we can know who you are. I pray that we would look through your word, that we would find great joy in your word, that it would be a source of life for us, because the number one thing we should want in this life is to know who you are and to know what you've done for us, and to know what you want of us. So, Father, I pray that we wouldn't leave here confused about who you are. We wouldn't leave here guessing about who you are, but that we would leave here knowing exactly who you are. That you're the kind of God who doesn't expect us to offer our children up, but you're the kind of God who offers your perfect, sinless child up on our behalf. Thank you for the grace that you've shown us in offering up Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for his broken body and his shed blood. Thank you that we don't have to offer sacrifices because that great sacrifice has already been made on our behalf. Thank you that you love us and you forgive us, that you are not content to leave us to our own devices, even though we deserve great judgment. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy and your patience that the cross shows so clearly and so brightly in a world that is full of sin. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.
If you do not yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have not yet trusted in the sacrifice that God made on your behalf, I pray that you talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to have a conversation with you, happy to answer your questions, whatever it is that you would like to do. Now, in light of that, uh, a few weeks ago, we actually had a person take advantage of this moment, a person named Kay, uh, who decided to talk to one of our elders at the side of the room uh, during the end of the service. And Kay talked to Terry Blaker. Uh, She expressed interest in being baptized. So we met with her and prayed with her and talked through that with her. And she decided this past week to be baptized. So on Wednesday night, we baptized Kay. And I just wanted to introduce Kay to you. So, Kay, if you can... Come on up. So this is Kay. Uh, This is your new sister in Christ who you probably may have not met before, but she was baptized this week. So, Kay, uh, like we talked about before the service, I was going to ask you to repeat your confession of faith that we said when you got baptized. So you repeat after me. I believe believe. that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of the Living God, and I trust Him as my Lord and Savior. All right. Well, again, Kay was baptized this week. Uh, I certainly assume many of you haven't met Kay before. Uh, She's a little shy, if you can't tell, but uh, we're working. We're working with her to get her to come out of her shell a little bit. Uh, if you would like to talk with Kay, pray with Kay, absolutely feel free to do that uh, as you leave this morning and just celebrate with her uh, and welcome her to the family, uh, the family of Christ. So one more thing I did want to mention uh, before we go is that we have a sign up sheet out on the welcome desk for our May 22nd lunch that is going to be celebrating our high school and college graduates. So if you would like to sign up to bring something for that meal, food, supplies, whatever, feel free to do that. That sign up sheet is out on the welcome desk. And I'll close this in prayer one more time since we have Kay up here, and then we'll sing our final song. Father, again, we're so thankful for Kay. We're thankful for the work that you've been doing in her life and her heart and her mind. Uh, We're grateful for the decision that she made to be baptized. Uh, This next step in her walk with your son, Jesus, uh, I pray that you would walk with her every step of the way, uh, that you would give her a stronger hunger and a stronger yearning to know you and to love you and to worship you and to tell other people about you as well. I pray that we as a church would do a good job of caring for her and loving her and supporting her and praying for her, uh, all the things that we're called to do as a body of Christ, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to be good brothers and sisters to Kay. Lord, again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time that we've had together. We thank you for your word. And we ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.